Right, so hello everyone. My following guest needs no introduction, but I'll still offer a short one. I mean, probably you're searching for his name on YouTube when you stumble across this video. Professor William Lane Craig, my guest today, is a world-renowned theologian and philosopher of religion. He authored so many books on these topics, I mean, including the Kalam Cosmological Argument in 1979, uh, God Overall, The Atonement, uh, In Quest of the Historical Adam, and many others. And besides his academic scholarship, Professor Craig is internationally known for his debates with various academics and popular atheists, such as Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Lawrence Krauss, Peter Millikan, my former Oxford tutor, and uh, Ari Huffman, and, and many others. So, Professor Craig, thank you for being here. My pleasure, Theodore. Thank you for inviting me on the program. So as I said, when I was a high school student, uh, I was watching your debates, I mean, before I applied to read philosophy at university. And I remember watching the one that you had with Peter Millikan, and that kind of convinced me that I have to apply <laughs> to study philosophy. Uh, I mean, I studied with him, I, I read computer science and philosophy, but I'm very interested in philosophy of religion, even though I have a computer science yeah. background. Let's talk about uh, your debating career first, before we get into the more philosophy of religion uh, questions. I guess you had dozens of debates. Do you know whether there are more than 30 debates that you had? I have never counted them, but I suspect that they are approaching 100 uh, over really? the many decades that I have been doing this. And did you have any opponent that made you reconsider one of the arguments that you typically uh, present? Well, not so much reconsider the arguments, but I, I did have some debates where I felt I didn't do as well as I should. For example, my first debate with Austin Dacey at Purdue University um, was one that I felt I could have done better. And so I wanted a second crack at Austin Dacey, and I got it out at Sacramento State University. And I really went loaded for bear on that second debate and felt that I did much better. Another debate I had at the University of Leeds with a British philosopher was one that I regretted because uh, although he could not handle the arguments, he uh, tried to win over the students with his dry humor and British wit, which of course I couldn't match. And so he had them laughing and most of his speech was just mockery. It wasn't serious philosophy. And I, I felt that um, he did a better job of connecting with the audience than I did because of his um, wittiness. Um, so those would be a couple of debates where I think I, I could have done better. Who would you think is one of the most uh... Uh, spectacular debaters that you competed against? I mean, not necessarily in terms of philosophical argumentation, but in terms of delivery, yeah. in terms of style. And I guess you can't really be totally effective without having some good arguments as well. So I guess that, uh, that will come into the picture as well. Yeah, fair enough. Well, you mentioned the debate with Peter Milliken at my alma mater, the University of Birmingham. And many people think that was one of the best debates that mm. I've ever been engaged in. We had a very substantive exchange. Um, I think the best debate that I've ever been in was with a philosopher from the University of North Carolina named Doug Jessup. And uh, this was so interesting because he insisted that he go first in the debate. Mm. And I said, well, the affirmative always goes first, not the negative, but he was adamant. And so, we had to have a coin flip in front of the departmental secretary to determine who goes first. And he won the coin flip. And so I thought, what is going on here? He is going to launch a preemptive attack on my case before I even present it. And so when I get up, I'm already behind the eight ball. And sure enough, that's exactly what he did. He got up and went through all five of my arguments before I ever gave them, presenting two or three objections to each one. Um, and I thought he would do this. So what I did was I prepared a short speech for my constructive so that I could extemporaneously respond to those objections and at least try to bring things back to a level playing field. And that's what I did. 
And after that, it was just a very, very good debate. It went right down to the final rebuttal uh, before I felt I pulled ahead. And afterwards, I shook his hand and said, you are a very good debater. And he said, thanks, I was on my university debate team. So here was a fellow who had not only the philosophical training, but he had the training in debate that made him, I think, the most formidable opponent I've ever had. Who decides who won a debate? I mean, is there a poll at the end that we don't see on the YouTube videos where is there a judge or is it just, uh, I know, left open? Sometimes there is a ballot that is distributed. And what the ballot usually asks is, what is your view when you came in here tonight? And then after the debate, what is your view after hearing the debate? And you can register whether there's been any movement in one direction or the other. And in that way, you can score the debate. So sometimes that kind of ballot is used. For the most part, however, uh, it will just simply be your impression watching the debate. I think everybody has to decide for himself which way the evidence points. So you said that you debated Peter Millikan at Birmingham, and that was your alma mater. Uh, that's where you did your second doctorate, right? That was my first. Uh, I studied under John Hick at the University of Birmingham uh, on the cosmological argument for God's existence. And then after completing that, my wife Jan and I moved to Germany, where I did mm. my doctorate in theology with Wolfhard Pannenberg at the University of Munich. Why did you decide to do a second one? I mean, I'm doing a PhD now, and I could never contemplate going again <laughs> for another PhD. Um, I wanted to study under Pannenberg because he had rocked German theology by defending the resurrection of Jesus historically. And I wanted to work on the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus uh, with Pannenberg. And so that was my motivation. I, I wanted to have not only a cosmological argument for God's existence, but an argument based upon the historicity of Jesus' resurrection for God's decisive self-revelation in Jesus. And so together, these two components constitute, I think, a very powerful case for Christian theism. Yeah, at some point later, I want to ask, how do you usually make the move from the canonical arguments for the, the God of the philosophers mm. to the Christian God? Because I guess the transition is not immediate, but uh, I will postpone that for a later yeah. segment. I watched a couple of your debates this week uh, in order to familiarize myself with what people tend to say uh, in response to your arguments. And I noticed that a lot of your opponents tend to say that you have the burden of proof in a theistic debate. And if you have the burden of proof, that sort of makes their arguments a bit easier, doesn't it? Because they can just say that your case is not convincing if they are correct. Yeah. But I have the impression that you think that they have the burden of proof because often you talk as though tonight we have, no, we have not heard any good arguments for atheism. Yeah. Uh, so I want to ask you, what do you think is the appropriate view to take on the burden of proof question? Is it the theist that has the burden of proof or the atheist, and why? This is a very perceptive observation on your part, Theodore. If the proposition under debate were a statement, uh, for example, the proposition that God exists, then the affirmative would have the burden of proof. Um, so, for example, uh, in my debate at Cambridge University with uh, Arif Ahmed and Larry Copson, the resolution under debate was the House believes that uh, belief in God is a delusion. And mm. in that case, they had the burden of proof to show that God or belief in God is delusory. And all we had to do was show that there's no good reason to think that. But that's why, Theodore, if you've noticed, I almost always frame the proposition under debate in the form of a question, not a statement. It will be, does God exist? Or um, what is the foundation for objective moral values and duties? Um, 
rather than uh, a statement. And when you ask a question, then both sides have the burden of proof of defending their answer to that question. And so that's why my contentions will always be that here's my affirmative case. There are good reasons to answer the question affirmatively. And then I demand that the negative give a good case for answering the question negatively. And if he doesn't do that, he hasn't borne his share of the burden of proof. How do you understand uh, atheism? Because I guess that also uh, affects the answer to my previous question and who has the burden of proof. Because I can see someone mounting an argument of the following form. I mean, the greatest life questions are open questions. And if they're open questions, our doxastic attitude towards the, the theistic proposition should by default be on non-belief because if we don't believe in any answer, we don't believe in that particular answer. So doesn't, doesn't it mean from the fact that the greatest questions seem open that the baseline default position has to be atheism? Well, there are at least three forms of non-belief in God. One would be atheism, which disbelieves in God, which says God does not exist. Another form of non-belief would be agnosticism, which says, I don't know whether or not God exists, so I have no opinion on the matter. And then the third view would be some kind of non-cognitivism, which says that the question doesn't have an answer because it's meaningless. That's the old verificationist line on these sorts of questions. So it's important to find out, is your opponent arguing for atheism, agnosticism, or non-cognitivism? Because those are all different views, even though they are all species of non-belief. But it seems to me that there's at least one more option because agnosticism seems to be an epistemological position. I mean, it seems to be about what we can know, whilst atheism and theism yeah. seem to be doxastic position. Your how you situate yourself towards the proposition that God exists, either disbelief or it seems to me different oh. to say that I disbelieve that God exists and I don't believe that God exists because. One has an active dimension yeah. and one is just... I don't, I don't think that's right. Uh, disbelief is a form of non-believing. A person who does not believe this proposition can either disbelieve it, uh, just remain neutral about it like the agnostic, or he can say it's a meaningless question. And those are all different views. So... Um, Having positive disbelief or belief is just two of the options, but agnosticism is also a doxastic stance. Uh, to withhold belief is to take a doxastic position with regard to a proposition. Uh, and I think that the agnostic position is much easier to defend than the atheist position. I see. So you don't think it's an interesting difference between saying that I disbelieve that P and I don't believe that P. I can imagine in the case of truth, I mean, saying that uh, something is false seems to be different than saying that is not true. I can imagine borderline cases of vagueness where oh, things... Right. I mean, to be white. false is to be not true. But, but what the point is that... Again, I'm repeating myself here that non-belief comes in different forms, different species. The atheist, the agnostic, and the non-cognitivist all have non-belief. They don't believe in the proposition that God exists. And yet their positions are very importantly different, and we shouldn't try to mask over those um, and pretend that they, they don't exist. Yeah, as I said, my intuition came from the case of truth. I don't entirely agree that falsity is the same of non-truth, especially as a, a logic student. There are a lot of logics, free-valued logics, where besides the classical Boolean values go with a third truth value, which represents something else. It yeah. seems like a lot of philosophers are very careful. So it's not obvious to me that when you negate something is the same as uh, when you do the other option. 
Fair enough. I, I've discussed this in my work on divine foreknowledge and human freedom, where some opponents of divine foreknowledge want to deny the principle of bivalence, that every proposition is either true or false. Uh, and I argue that these multivalent logics, such as were developed by the Polish logician Łukasiewicz, have ser serious applications, for example, in electronic circuitry, where you could have a switch that is either on, off, or neutral, um, and in certain other applications. But I see no reason to think that it applies to propositions, and that propositions either can have a third truth value or that they can be a truth value gap. But that's a question on which we can disagree and, and interact. I, I don't think it needs to be a major point of contention. Okay, so let's warm up with some uh, different questions. Uh, what do you think, since you have a PhD in both subjects, what is the difference between theology and philosophy of religion for, for the audience that might not know the difference? Yeah. That's a very, very good question. I am working now writing a systematic philosophical theology, and this has caused me to reflect at some length on the differences between theology and philosophy of religion. And it seems to me that theology is a very broad-ranging term that can encompass such disciplines as biblical theology, Old and New Testament studies, or historical theology, where you study the intellectual history, for example, of the Christian faith. Um, it could also involve comparative religion, where you compare, say, Christian belief with Hinduism and Buddhism and, and Islam. And it also comprises uh, dogmatics or um, systematic theology. And my contention is that good systematic theology attempts to construct a credible Christian worldview on the basis of the biblical data, and that therefore good systematic theology will inherently involve philosophy. And so I think that for the Christian systematic theologian, the task is basically the same as for the Christian philosopher of religion. I think that the good systematician has to take account of philosophy, and I think that the Christian philosopher of religion should take account of biblical data and divine revelation. So I don't see a sort of um, a hermetic sealing off of these two disciplines from each other. I think they merge together. In your experience being very well versed in the literature on both fields, do you think it's possible to be a stellar philosopher of religion, but a quite mediocre theologian, or the other way around? Do you think you can do good work in a field whilst being, I don't know? It's very easy to point to examples of that phenomenon. I was just at a conference last week speaking with a prominent systematic theologian, and he named another systematic theologian and said, I think that his book on systematic theology is the worst systematic theology out there because it is so philosophically naive and so bad, just full of mistakes. So it certainly is true that many theologians lack training in philosophy, uh, and so they make all sorts of uh, mistakes and, and leaps and unjustified inferences. Now, at the same time, in all fairness, I have to say that many Christian philosophers of religion have never studied the biblical languages. They've never studied theology. And so they also take views that I think are untenable uh, as a Christian position. And I've already mentioned one. There are many philosophers who deny that God foreknows future contingents like the free choices that we will make. And it seems to me that that is simply biblically ruled out because the Bible not only gives example after example of God's prophecies of future contingents, but the New Testament actually introduces a vocabulary for foreknowledge, like prognosco, to for 
no, prognosis for knowledge. So it seems to me that um, the consistent uh, Christian cannot deny divine foreknowledge of the future as some of these Christian theologians have done. How do you see the future of philosophy of religion? I, I just checked the latest uh, field papers uh, reports by David Chalmers, and it seems like less than 20% of people sort of support your views outside the philosophy of religion community mostly. Yeah. Do you think that number will shrink? And if we'll get below a certain threshold, do you think that's dangerous for the field? I, I looked into this a number of years ago, Theodore, because it struck me as a rather small percentage. And what I discovered is that, that those surveys are highly selective. They are by, they, they pick the people that they want to send these interviews for. And even though at my university, there were uh, at least a dozen philosophers, none of us was asked for his opinion. None of us was sent a survey. And I expect that's true for many Christian universities and colleges that they're just overlooked. If you look at the list of universities to which the surveys were sent, almost all of them were secular universities, not um, Christian or Catholic universities. Uh, and then of the 900 surveys that were sent out, I think only about 40% were actually returned. So these results, I think, are very suspicious and skewed. I, I think that the movement of Christian philosophy in our day is robust, it's healthy, and that even though many of the great names like Alvin Plantinga and Robert Adams, um, William Alston, Philip Quinn, uh, Marilyn Adams, um, are either retired or even deceased. Nevertheless, I see many fine, young philosophers and graduate students coming up to fill their shoes. Uh, and in the case of a man like Plantinga, it's going to take several to fill his shoes. No one person will do it. But nevertheless, I, I am encouraged. And I think this renaissance that's been going on over the last 50 years or so will continue. What is the theistic brand that you subscribe to? So what is the name of the view that you typically defend? Are you a classical theist, an upgrade to that? I guess uh, since you're a Christian, is not just classical theism. Is... Um, Thomists or followers of Thomas Aquinas have tried to co-opt the label classical theist, and I refuse to let them have it. Uh, I consider myself a classical theist uh, in the tradition of the church fathers and, and the medievals, but I do not affirm uh, Thomistic doctrines like a strong view of divine simplicity, uh, a strong view of immutability, um, God's impassibility, God's timelessness. So I think that the classical philosophical theistic tradition allows for a variety of positions on these issues. Um, so I consider myself a classical theist, so long as you don't understand that to mean a Thomist. What would be the divine attributes of your God? Right. I think it would be to affirm that God is metaphysically necessary, um, that he exists a se, that he's the sole ultimate reality, everything apart from God is created by him, that he is eternal, um, that he is omnipresent, that he is omnipotent, uh, and morally perfect. I think that those would be attributes that are at the heart of classical theism. Right, and you, in your doctoral thesis uh, with John Hick, I guess you made an argument that this God exists. So I guess we can go into that direction uh, now. But I heard you sure. say something interesting in the debate with, uh, with Professor Millikan. You said this line, that there is a danger that arguments for God could actually distract attention from, from God himself. Uh, so before we get into the arguments, 
Why, why did you say that? I said that, Theodore, because my life was radically changed when, as a teenager, I came to place my faith personally in Jesus Christ and came to know him as my Savior and my Lord and Master. I am his disciple, and I seek to follow him. And I think it's possible to get so wrapped up in arguments for God's existence that one fails to cultivate that personal devotional life um, of walking with God on a daily basis. And I, I, I want to maintain that uh, and not just get wrapped up in intellectual arguments. When you think about it, um, a loving God wouldn't leave it up to us to figure out by our own cleverness and ingenuity whether or not he exists. Rather, he would reach out and seek to draw each of us to himself that we could know him. And that's exactly what the Bible says God has done. Through his Holy Spirit, he speaks to the heart of every person through the proclamation of the gospel, uh, convicting that person and drawing him to himself. And I believe that a person who responds to the drawing and convicting of the Holy Spirit with an open mind and an open heart um, will come to place his faith in Christ and is entirely rational uh, in doing so, whether or not he has um, intellectually sound arguments for God. But if the case, the intellectual case for God is not trivial to make, and two, I guess a lot of people like Bernard Russell or uh, I don't know who defends this view of divine hiddenness would say that a loving God could make a bit more effort to reveal himself beyond doubt to the world. Because it seems very, if, if God actually reveals himself, as you say, it's quite subtle, isn't it? Couldn't he reveal himself yeah. just enough so that people wouldn't make intellectual cases <laughs> uh, for his existence anymore? Yes, the hiddenness of God is a, is a deep question. And I've already begun to lay out how I would answer it, namely, um, that I think the primary way in which we come to a knowledge of God is through the inner witness of his Holy Spirit rather than through intellectual arguments and evidence. Uh, and even a person who is raised in a culture or at a time in history when he is utterly bereft of adequate intellectual arguments can still rationally come to know God on the basis of God's own witness to his reality. And my belief is, based on the Bible, um, that God wants everybody to come to a knowledge of himself. And if he thought that providing more evidence and argument would bring more people into a personal relationship with himself, I think he would give it. Um, but he is under no obligation to provide additional evidence or argument to a person if he knew it wouldn't do any good. Uh, certainly God could put a neon cross in the sky that says Jesus saves, but there's no reason to think that that would lead more people into a personal, saving, loving relationship with God uh, than mere belief that, oh, there, I guess I've got to add another item to my intellectual inventory. Uh, and, and God's not primarily concerned with that. He's, he's concerned with drawing people into a personal relationship. Now, the other thing that I would say about the hiddenness of God, apart from the fact that I think there is good argument and evidence for God, uh, I, I deny the premise, which says that God is utterly hidden. But in addition to that, I believe in a God who has middle knowledge. That is to say, he knows how people would respond in whatever circumstances he might place them in. And I think that God knows for each one of us that if we were placed in circumstances in which we had greater evidence than we do, that it wouldn't make any difference. Uh, and that therefore he's not obligated to give greater evidence than he already has, which I think is pretty good. Don't you think that purely psychologically speaking, there are some people which are really unlike you and have great trouble opening themselves up 
to things that they cannot rationalize. I mean, this is their temperament and their personality. And without actually making an intellectual case, it's not in their nature to to behave in the way that you encourage them to behave in order to find. Uh, well, I think that the spirit of God uh, is able to overcome those kinds of predispositions and uh, biases. Um, but it may be that a person like that will come to know God uh, through considering a cosmological argument or a fine-tuning argument uh, or an ontological argument. You used the word trivial a moment ago, and by no means do I think the arguments for God's existence are trivial. Uh, they can be the means by which the Spirit of God draws a person to himself. I didn't say the arguments are trivial. I said that is not trivial to make a case for his existence. I may have misunderstood. Okay, so let's try to talk about one of those arguments. Uh, tell me if I spell out the Kalam cosmological argument correctly. First of all, what is the name Kalam doing uh, in that argument? Kalam is an Arabic word for speech. And during the Middle Ages, it came to uh, embody the whole of Islamic doctrine and philosophical theology. And this argument was developed in highly sophisticated ways by medieval Muslim theologians. And so I dubbed the argument, the Kalam cosmological argument, um, in honor of the Muslim theologians who developed it so well. Right. And the argument is the following. You have to premises and a conclusion, in a way, is quite a simple argument to state. It's that whatever begins to exist has a cause for its existence. The universe began uh, to exist. Ergo, the universe has a cause for its existence. Well, I guess it's more because you haven't yet established in those three steps that that cause is God and it has the divine attributes and so on. But this is the, the first step towards uh, that conclusion. That's right. Once you've reached that conclusion, then you need to do a conceptual analysis of what it is to be a cause of the beginning of the universe. And a striking number of divine attributes will emerge from such an analysis. Can you give some examples and why they follow? Yeah. So I think, for example, that it will prove the existence of a first, beginningless, uncaused, immaterial, timeless, spaceless, changeless, enormously powerful, personal creator of the universe. So that would be the concept of the being to which the argument leads. But it's not obvious to me how you conclude that he's a personal creator from just the Kalam argument. Yes. Well, I, I want to refer you to my book, uh, Reasonable Faith, um, in the chapter on arguments for God, where I give three independent arguments for the personhood of the first cause of the universe. And just to summarize, the first one would be that only uh, a personal cause can explain the origin of a temporal effect with a beginning from a permanently existing cause. Uh, secondly, would be that... Uh, only an abstract object or an unembodied mind could be a timeless, spaceless, immaterial cause of the universe. But abstract objects are causally a feat, and therefore it follows that the cause of the universe must be an unembodied mind. And then the third argument is one offered by Richard Swinburne that Causal explanations are either personal explanations or scientific explanations, but a, an absolutely first state of the universe cannot be given a scientific explanation in terms of natural laws and initial conditions from which it follows that the cause of the universe must be personal. And so on the basis of those three arguments, I think we have a really good case, honestly, for thinking that we're dealing here with a personal creator. Can we please come back to argument number two that you presented uh, earlier, uh, where you divided the space of possibilities into abstract objects and unembodied minds? 
That is not intuitively yes. obvious to me. I mean, I understand that those are two candidates, but I don't understand why these have to exhaust the space. Well, if the um, if my interlocutor has some third alternative, he's certainly welcome to present it. But I've never heard a third alternative to that. No one has ever suggested one to me, nor am I aware of any in the philosophical literature. Uh, we're looking for something that would be a transcendent, spaceless, timeless, immaterial thing. And apart from abstract objects or an unembodied mind, I, I can't think of, nor have I heard of, any third alternative. Okay, suppose those are just the two alternatives that are really there. With that in mind, whilst I agree that mathematical abstracta, like number seven, cannot cause anything, is causally impotent, it's not, again, intuitively obvious to me that there are not other species of abstract objects, which are not mathematical, that might have causal powers. Because, again, we're, we're speculating about something very, very interesting. Obviously, if it's the cause of the universe and the like, it might be a very special abstract object. So I agree with you that number seven cannot cause the universe to exist. But what makes you convinced that other abstracta cannot do the job? Yeah. Well, I don't see any difference between them and the number seven. They are all transcendent, spaceless, timeless things that are causally isolated, if not impotent. Um, and I don't see how they could have any sort of causal impact on things. They don't seem, they're not agents. They can't cause things by coming into physical contact with them. So um, it, it's very, very widely held that abstracta are causally a feat. Um, so again, my interlocutor is welcome to identify an abstract object that's not like that, um, but he's going to have to do some hard work to make such an alternative plausible. But then why are you happy with unembodied minds doing the job? Because as you say, we have uh -huh. the first premise of the Kalam, whatever begins to exist has a cause for its existence. And you make the case that we never experience things coming into being uncaused. But I would say that we never yeah. experience unembodied minds. So if we take our ordinary experience as being relevant, that sort of discounts the option of an unembodied mind, right? Well, here we get into the famous mind-body problem. And I would say that there are indeed very powerful uh, arguments that we are um, immaterial minds or selves that are conjoined with a body. Uh, and I think the arguments against reductive physicalism and even non-reductive physicalism are very powerful. So um, I, I don't think we have good evidence that immaterial minds are impossible um, or that there could not be an unembodied mind who created the universe. Indeed, I think the Kalam argument gives us good reason to think that there is such a thing. On the theistic picture, we are conjoined. We have a, a soul and we have a body, but they are quite intimately connected, obviously. I mean, when you have a patient that suffers from Alzheimer, you sort of have the impression that as the days go by or the years, the soul slowly exits the body. I mean, it seems like that person is not there, the Alzheimer patient, as the days go by. So it still seems as though the mind is embodied, right? I mean, it seems to, to be yeah. so closely linked that we have no experience of minds just floating around, out, even outside the universe. I mean, that's uh, a further... Well, I would say that... That is not sufficient to show that an unembodied mind cannot exist. Given that the, the, the dualism is true, that the mind and body are distinct, though conjoined, um, I don't think we have any evidence that the soul cannot exist unembodied or disembodied. Now here, my colleague J.P. Moreland, who works in mind-body issues, has done a great deal of work on near-death experiences. And he at least claims that these provide very good empirical evidence that the soul can exist um, apart from the body. 
Um, so we can't just write this off without examining it. I, I, I think one would need to look at these near-death experiences and, and see if they provide some credible evidence that unembodied existence is possible. Yeah, but given that we haven't observed it, then why do you discount the possibility of something coming into existence without a cause? I mean, um, as, I, as I said, well, it seems to have... On, on that, I, I, I think that you have focused on my third and weakest argument for the causal principle. My main reasons for believing the causal principle, I have three of them, are metaphysical, not empirical. Uh, they are that I think it's impossible for something to come from nothing. Being doesn't come from non-being. And therefore, something to come into being without a cause is metaphysically impossible. The second argument is the one that Arthur Pryor gave, namely that if things could come into being uncaused from nothing, then it becomes inexplicable why just anything and everything doesn't come into being uncaused from nothing. And then the third argument is the one that you mentioned, that inductively, um, whenever we look for things that begin to exist, we find that they have causes of their existence. Uh, and that inductive argument is admittedly the weakest of the three, but nevertheless, it is as powerful as any scientific inductive argument can be, that we have this experience of things that begin to exist have causes. Yeah, but given that science investigates the natural realm and uh, we're talking about an entity that steps outside it, it seems not to have the same scientific spirit because it goes outside the domain uh, of applicability, doesn't it? That consideration, I think, strengthens the causal principle. Too many uh, laymen or students say, oh, well, the causal principle only applies within the universe, but not to the universe. And I think they fail to understand that the causal principle is not like a physical law, like Boyle's laws of ideal gases or the laws of thermodynamics that only apply in the universe once the universe exists. The causal principle that something cannot come into being from nothing is a metaphysical principle as old as Parmenides um, and uh, would apply if the universe itself began to exist. It's not a physical law that applies merely within the universe. Okay, let's go to the second premise, which I also think is very interesting, uh, that the universe began to exist. You typically have two lines on that. You have a philosophical argument, which you think is enough to settle the truth of that premise, and uh, one based yeah. on cosmology. I'm not a cosmologist. I don't know how to evaluate those. I also believe that the premise is true. So I want to lay that out from the outset. You, you don't need to convince me that the premise is true. But I didn't really understand, to be honest. I, I read a paper of yours today from the, uh, on the Kalam cosmological argument. You have these infinitary considerations which philosophically aim to prove that the universe could not have been eternal. Can you please explain to us your argument based on infinity. Um, the medieval philosophers who defended the Kalam cosmological argument, like these Muslim theologians, had no knowledge, obviously, of modern cosmology or evidence for the beginning of the universe. On the contrary, people thought the universe was eternal. But people like Al-Ghazali presented various philosophical arguments for the beginning of the universe. And of the arguments they present, two strike me as very plausibly sound. The first is the argument based on the impossibility of the existence of an actually infinite number of things. When you understand the concept of an actual infinite, you find that it involves all sorts of paradoxical notions that I am persuaded are metaphysically impossible, even if they are logically consistent. Uh, and therefore, you could not have an actually infinite regress of events into the past. The second argument is independent of the first and is based on the impossibility of forming an actually infinite collection by successive addition. Uh, sometimes this is called the 
impossibility of counting to infinity or traversing the infinite. Um, no matter how far you count, you will never arrive at infinity uh, by successive addition. Similarly, I think it is equally impossible to say that you could count down from infinity ending at zero. Um, because before you could count any, for example, any negative number, you would already have to have counted an infinite number of prior numbers. And so you just get driven back and back and back into the past. And so if the past were infinite, I don't think today would ever arrive. But obviously here we are, which suggests that the universe must have begun to exist a finite time ago, um, and that it has been um, then adding events ever since that first event occurred. So those would be two independent philosophical arguments for the beginning of the universe that I find persuasive. Yeah, both of them are really interesting. Let's focus on the first one. What paradoxes sort of persuade you that actual infinities instantiated in physical realities would be metaphysically nonsense, even though it's logically okay? Yeah, one of my favorites is the brainchild of the great uh, German mathematician David Hilbert, Hilbert's Hotel, uh, a hotel with an actually infinite number of rooms. And what Hilbert uh, shows is that if you could have such a hotel in reality, you could have a hotel that is absolutely full, that there are no vacant rooms in it, and yet it could accommodate infinitely more guests, which seems to me to be crazy. Um, and it has also other paradoxical uh, features as well. So that would be one illustration of the kind of situations that could result if an actually infinite number of things could exist. For my audience, can you please explain to them why, how you can accommodate an infinite yeah. number of guests in your full hotel? Here's what Hilbert says. Suppose that the hotel is absolutely full and a new guest shows up at the front desk asking for a room. No problem, says the manager. And he moves the guest who was in room one into room two, the guest who was in room two into room three, the guest who was in room three into room four, and so out to infinity. As a result, room number one becomes vacant, and the new guest is easily accommodated. And yet before he arrived, all of the rooms were already occupied. Now, Hilbert says, suppose an infinity of new guests show up at the front desk asking for rooms. No problem, no problem, says the manager. And he moves the guest who was in room one into room two. The guest who was in room two into room four. The guest who was in room three into room six. And so on out to infinity, always putting every guest in the room number double his own. And since any number multiplied by two is always an even number, all of the odd-numbered rooms wind up vacant, and the infinity of new guests is easily accommodated. And yet, as I say, before they arrived, all the rooms were already occupied. Um, and so you just have to ask yourself, do you think a hotel like that could really exist? I was, I was recently reading this book by Joe David Hankins, Proof and the Art of Mathematics, and he starts the book uh, with uh, an illustration of Hilbert's Hotel. And uh, he... Huh he presents a train which has an infinite amount of cars and each of the cars has an infinite amount of people. I mean, person one in seat one, person two in seat two, and for each of the infinite cars, you have that. And you can house this entire train into an already full Hilbert Hotel. Uh, and oh. that's, that is given us a mathematical exercise. But the mere fact that is given us a mathematical exercise, to me, it shows that we have a mathematical understanding of how this object would uh, would behave. And you can actually yes. ask students to think about it. So why wouldn't it be yes. physically possible to instantiate it if it's coherent? Yeah, that's a wonderful uh, observation, Theodore, because sometimes students react to these paradoxes by saying, oh, well, the infinite is impossible to understand. These paradoxes result because we don't understand infinity. And as you pointed out, precisely the opposite is true. Uh, 
Infinite set theory is a well-developed and well-understood field of mathematics, and it is precisely because we do understand the concept of the actual infinite that these paradoxes are seen to result. Now, as to your question, it's so important to draw a distinction between strict logical impossibility and metaphysical impossibility. There are lots of things which may be strictly logically possible, but which are metaphysically impossible. For example, Alvin Plantinga uses the uh, example that the prime minister is a prime number. There's no strict logical inconsistency in that, but nevertheless, it's metaphysically impossible. Or that gold should have a different atomic number than 79. There's no logical inconsistency in that, but that's metaphysically impossible. Um, Or that my desk could have been made of ice. Uh, It's made of wood, by the way. Uh, There's no strict impossibility in that, but nevertheless, it's metaphysically impossible. So there are lots and lots of illustrations of things that are metaphysically impossible, even though they don't involve a strict logical inconsistency. And I'm persuaded that the existence of an actually infinite number of things is one such example. I would press you more on that, but we don't have a lot of a lot of time. So I would just ask you, how do you typically make the leap from such an argument? I mean, suppose we talked about the ontological argument or the cosmological argument or the fine-tuning argument. Maybe that's for, from, for some other time. How do you make the leap from... Suppose someone is persuaded by that. How do you move from the God of the philosophers yes. to the God of Christianity? That requires us to look at Jesus of Nazareth. Um, The arguments will lead to a kind of generic theism that is affirmed by deism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. But to see which of these great monotheistic faiths is correct, we have to look at the person of Jesus of Nazareth and ask ourselves, who was he? And I would argue that Jesus made personal, blasphemous claims, if they were false, whereby he put himself in the place of God, but that the evidence is that God raised him from the dead, thereby vindicating those allegedly blasphemous claims and showing that Jesus really was who he claimed to be, namely the absolute revelation of God. And that's the work I did under Pallenberg at the University of Munich. It is step two in a case for Christian theism. What is the name of the book where people can find out more about this step two? Well, take a look at my book, Reasonable Faith, which has chapters on both the existence of God and the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That would be the most accessible. I have, in addition to that scholarly work that I think is included in the bibliography, but Reasonable Faith would be a good starting point. Professor Craig, I'm so glad that you took your time to be with with me here today. I'm glad I could talk to one of the foremost philosophers of religion, and I hope you have a great day. Well, thank you very much for a stimulating conversation, Theodore, and I wish you the very best with your continued studies. Thank you, Professor.